We've been in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 for a little bit of time. And uh, just to provide again uh, that highlight or that review of of what we've seen, uh, there's this poem in chapter 3 verses 1 through 9. A poem uh, describing several experiences of humanity. A time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build up, etc. And and, in these times... Uh, collectively provide an overall account of the life of humanity. Uh, Not one single person necessarily, but the life that we all experience as humans in this world, in this life. Whether it's good or it's bad, whether it's right or it's wrong, whether it's beautiful or it's ugly, all these things are contained in these verses. So beautiful is this poem that uh, often it is uh, uh, read at funerals, even of unbelievers, because of the way in which it seeks to, it seems to encapsulate uh, the experiences of life. But as we continue to read uh, in verses 10 through 15, we find that uh, the purpose of this poem is laid out for us, that every human event or experience has its own time. It has its own place in the history of the world. And these times, these events, these these points in history are not set by men, but by God, who soundly understands, who sovereignly ordains, who supremely governs the times and actions of all of His creatures. From our perspective, then time is permanently changing and try as we might to discover or produce any lasting gain or any satisfying reward this fleeting fading and frustrating life will not provide such therefore the theme of this book in one sense is that this life is vanity fleeting fading frustrating but god says there in verse 11, has made everything beautiful and beautifully fitting in its time. And therefore, we can enjoy God through what He gives to us in this life. When we know Him, we not only want the blessings that He provides for us, but we desire the blesser Himself. And yet, coming from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to verse 15, we have to ask the question, do these things fit together? It it seems as if the, the logic is skewed or slanted for a moment. We experience several mixed times, good and bad. God ordains and supervises all times, good and bad. God makes everything fitting in its time good and bad. Do these things fit together? And the answer is yes, these things do fit together. God's sovereign care and control over all is the great equalizer. He knows how to work through all things to manifest His glory and the well-being of His people through the good and the bad, the the exciting and, and the boring through the 
time of giving birth and the time of dying, through planting as well as uprooting, through tearing down as well as building up, through searching as well as giving up, silence and shouts, love and hate, God is in control and he brings these things all together for great ends, good ends, glorious ends. Our own confession uh, seeks to put this into uh, instructive words. In chapter 5, you can read in the Confession of Faith, Westminster Confession of Faith, you can read about the providence of God. And there it says in the opening words, God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, uh, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Now that's a mouthful. It's probably even harder to hear if you don't have it right in front of you to read. But the essence of it is to say that God, uh, he is preserving and governing everything. The chapter on providence, chapter 5, closes in this way. As the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner it taketh care of his church and disposeth all things to the good thereof. You see, there is a beloved in the heart of God. And it is you, church. And he is moving and orchestrating the universe for you. That is what we're learning about. And so today we want to follow Solomon as he brings us to consider uh, popular objections and, and popular concerns against this high view of all things in the world being preserved and governed, sustained and maintained by God in Christ Jesus. There is a time for good and for bad. But can these be set by a good and powerful God? That's the question that often comes. And it's spoken in various ways. And since God oversees all things and there are so many problems in the world, well then many are going to call into question God's power. Or call into question His holy character. And do not, do not be deceived as if this were a, a worldly problem, as if this were a problem for only unbelievers. All you have to do is spend some time in the Scriptures. Psalm 9, Psalm 10, Psalm 13, Psalm 94. You know the big theme of those Psalms? How long, O Lord? How long... Will we allow this disparity of good and bad to be in the world? How long will you allow it to be in the world? Psalm 73, we heard today, one struggling with the uh, apparent success and prosperity of uh, the wicked. While the righteous uh, are continually being persecuted and hounded or uh, living in 
uh, poverty or struggling to seek to be right in a world that's so wrong. The book of Habakkuk. The book of the prophet Habakkuk in the midst of the enemies seeming to have uh, the, the hand over Israel cries out to the Lord, Lord, how long is this to be? The conclusion is amazing. It's only three chapters. Go and read Habakkuk today. Gideon, Job, so many others. This is a, this is a text for you today, Christian. Because where we struggle at times to understand how uh, good and bad can both uh, be present in God's oversight or under God's oversight, uh, we need to be brought back to God himself. We need to be brought back to trusting in God that he really does have all of this in his hand and he does have a grand purpose in all of it. And we can draw near to him in it. Well, we're going to look at verses 16 through 22 today. And, and Lord willing, close out chapter 3. And so there are three points uh, to help guide us through these verses. First of all, man is wicked. We're going to look at this theme. Man is wicked. Secondly, man is mortal. Man is mortal. And thirdly, man is called to faith. Uh, so uh, these three themes... Uh, fit well, because as we consider uh, the sovereignty of God, uh, we, we don't blame wickedness on God as if God is the, the doer of wickedness. Man is wicked. Uh, we also understand that man is mortal. He's limited. Uh, and so we're, we're missing a lot, whereas God is not missing anything. But then thirdly, then, where do we turn if we're mortal and wicked, will we turn to God. That's our outline for today. So first, man is wicked. And we look again at verse 16 here. Furthermore, I've seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. See, now he's looking, and I want you to notice even those words, I have seen. Um, if you were to take chapter 3 and chapter 4 and just look at them all in one block, you would see multiple times this language. I have seen. I looked. It's the same idea or concept. And, and those are highlighting for us something else we're to look at, something else we're to give our attention to. And so furthermore, here's something else to give your attention to. Notice under the sun. This is a reality in this life. Under the sun is, is not comparing earth and heaven, but under the sun is saying the time where you live in this world. And what is noted? This question arises out of what is noted. Can God be in control and we at the same time see wickedness in the place of justice? Can God really be uh, preserving and governing and we see in the place of righteousness Wickedness? When Solomon speaks of the place of justice, you need to understand he's talking there about courts. The place where justice is supposed to be upheld. Uh, 
We can think of courts in, in a few different ways, not only civil courts, but also church courts. Uh, when he speaks about places of righteousness, he's talking about institutions where God has set up governments to oversee right doing, whether it be family government, church government, state government. And so Solomon knows that people struggle to see God in control when there is wickedness in the places where uh, justice and right doing are supposed to be guarded and maintained and practiced in those places of authority. How could God neglect the authorities and the, and the powers that he has established? That's really at the heart of the question. And the Bible is clear in many places to point out this is not God's negligence. This is not due to God's negligence. Nor is God being negligent in permitting it to exist. On our side of things, on the human side, when men abandon God's word, they tend to think that they govern themselves. You, you might know this very theme in your own life that if you're not seeking to be under the uh if you're not seeking to be in submission to god and under the authority of god and his word uh then what's left for you it's either uh self-rule or you'd be ruled by another person and so it's your rule and it's your way and and now it gets worse when that uh person who's not under authority, is given authority, then they expand the business. It's their law for everyone. It's my, my rules and my way for y'all. And that's what's being spoken of here. That's the human side of things. But on God's side, the one who ordains whatsoever comes to pass he is permitting the evil intentions of men because he purposes all of it for good. It all fits within his grand plan for all things. And we don't always see that. One of the uh, biggest examples of this uh, is uh, the life of Joseph who is put through a constant uh, um, rotation of uh, lifted up and put down, lifted up and put down, lifted up and put down, lifted up. And uh, you know the conclusion. His brothers are concerned that he's going to come after them when their dad dies because they're the ones who put him down. And he says, no, listen, uh, God is the judge, not me. And what you intended for evil, God meant for good. Such uh, sobering and yet uh, solid foundation words to stand upon. We do not see it all, but we can trust the God who does. Uh, one commentator says this, if we could see the end from the beginning and understand how a billion lives and a thousand generations and unspeakable sorrows and untold joys are all woven into a tapestry of human experience, of perfect beauty, 
then we would be God. We don't see the whole tapestry. But God does. In fact, God is the one who has made it. And drawing then from verse 11 to 14, Solomon reminds himself there in verse 17, where it literally says, I said in my own heart, I said in my heart, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. See, all courts will spend time in God's court. All judges shall have to approach and answer to this judge. And all authorities of righteousness will be measured against the righteousness of God. And the lesser and greater of multiple evils will have to stand before God. And no evil shall remain standing. There may be the lesser of two evils that we experience or we see in this world but those lesser two evils, they're going to have to both stand before God and God's going to judge them both. And you know, that's a, this is a rebuke to us because we tend to be a people who focus on the now. This is a helpful correction to us because we tend to focus on the present without the consideration of these words. Whenever we establish someone to lead us, who does not fear the Lord, we are not taking into consideration these words. You know, God does not deliver us from tyrants because we won't stop voting them in. But this isn't a sermon about voting in politics. That's another sermon. We ought to be amazed Today, as we read this, thinking about who's saying it. Who's saying that there's uh, wickedness in the place of justice and there's wickedness in the place of righteousness and God's going to judge the righteous man and the wicked man? Who's saying it? It's the king. It's the king who is making these observations. You see, and this is an important lesson for us. Even those who are given authority to do right and to judge or to appoint judges, must look to God's authority to judge. The leader who even seeks to do things right knows that the system in this fallen world is falling. And the, the cry in our hearts is for God's eternity. This is what he says in verse 11. He's put eternity into our hearts. I can, you know, we can sit here and we can be uh, seeking to do right and we can be seeking to judge things and we can be seeking to bring justice where there's injustice and we can uh, seek to put down unrighteousness. And yet, if we're not saying, oh God, when will you come and bring things to right? Then we're looking too much at ourselves. And, and we're missing eternity. We're ignoring it. But this is a king whose heart cry is for 
God to bring eternity into now. We hear the echoes of this in Psalm 73. Asaph, troubled by considering the apparent prosperity and success of the wicked uh, who seem to get away with all kinds of wickedness while blatantly disregarding the Most High. It is when Asaph comes to the sanctuary, when he steps into the presence of eternity or the eternal one, then he sees the end of all injustice. Then he sees the destiny of all wickedness. So Solomon. The preacher realizes that in placing eternity in these rulers' hearts, he also has placed a warning, hasn't he? Judgment is coming. Are you acting in justice and in judgment based on the reality that judgment is coming? Notice what he says again in verse 17. For a time for every matter and for every deed is there. You see, the point here is this. Solomon is saying, your actions matter today because God seeks what has passed by, verse 15. Or put another way, because God does not forget but calls our past to account. He calls our actions to account. He calls our behaviors to account. A time for every matter and for every deed is there in the judgment of God. Here's how one pastor puts it. The prosperity of the wicked is merely temporal and temporary, but the lot of those full of faith is eternal and joyful. Truly, we need to see things with the eyes of eternity and not with eyes that are focused on fleeting things. And so here's how the preacher is able to work through. Here's how Solomon's able to work through all of this. Man is wicked. There is wickedness in this world. But all of this is moving in a direction where in the end, God will have the final say. And then his heart says something else. Reflecting beyond rulers and judges, he thinks upon the mortality of the sons of men. The whole collection of humanity. You and me. And that brings us to our second point. Man is mortal. Look at verse 18. I said to myself, or literally I said in my heart, concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. Now the word here, tested, is an interesting word. It's a word that can mean to purge or to cleanse or to sift or sort out. Uh, some translations will say that he's uh, manifested them. The point here is this. God is removing something. He's clearing away something so that humanity can see and understand something about themselves. And what is the something he wants us to understand? We're like animals. Man is a beast. Now, there's so much confusion when we get to this verse and, and beyond here because uh, people misunderstand what's being said. Uh, Solomon is not saying that biologically we're all basically animals. That's not what he means at all. 
In fact, Solomon does not deny God's image in us uniquely as human beings. What we have to appreciate is this. We don't live in Solomon's day. Uh, where I think this has a particular meaning that we might miss if we're not careful. In Solomon's day, many people owned some animals. And they would use those animals as machinery, as food dispensers, as uh, cloth producers, and other forms of industry. Uh, Today, less people have farms, And so we often see animals in zoos. We look at them from a distance in the wild. We're not really around animals. And because we're not around animals, we're not around death of animals. Yes, we domesticate animals. People want pets. Usually it's one pet at a time. But if you have multiple animals that you're using industriously and you you work on a farm, even today if you work on a farm, you see that verse 2 theme. There is a time to give birth and there is a time to die. Life and death is present before you all the time. And you see mortality. And you begin to think about how you are like the animals. And that's the point here. Verse 19, for the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. Here's how you're the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Having animals around causes us to consider our likeness. We are all limited. We're all mortal creatures. And you see the universals he begins to speak here. Indeed, they all have the same breath. There is no advantage for man over beast. For all is vanity. All go to the same place. All came from the dust. All return to the dust. There's this universality here. Let me just draw three very simple points of of this portion. What he's saying is, first of all, life is fleeting, fading, and frustrating for animals too. The difference is, is that they're not aware of it or thoughtful of it the way that we are. Children, could you imagine the house fly? buzzing around and thinking, my life is fleeting. (laughs) Or imagine the lion. Uh, What have I done with my life? Maybe if you're watching The Wizard of Oz, I don't know. But what about the ant who sits there and thinks, ponders near the end of life, you know, was there really no time to play? Animals don't do that. But we do. That is why we're different. But at the end, life is fleeting and fading and frustrating for us and for them. More so for us, because we're aware of it. Secondly, in Genesis, we're told that God made both animals and man from dirt. Very humbling, isn't it? We didn't come from monkeys. We came from dirt. The difference, though, is that he breathed life into man. And in our funerals, we acknowledge this. But again, thinking of a difference, most animals don't get funerals. So there is a difference. But we all die. Life is vanity for both of us. 
we all die. And then thirdly, yes, there are differences, but in the end, we are all who return to the dust. This life is limited. Humans have no advantage over animals when it comes to a time to die. Isn't is that not really the theme? One of the themes of this point, uh, this book, sorry, central themes, is that we must be prepared to die. If we're prepared to die, then we're able best to live in this life. Verse twenty one, talk about confusing. Listen to this verse. Who knows what the breath of man ascends? Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward, and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? Now, many are confused by this. They think that Solomon, um, you know, he, he doesn't really know about the end of life issues. And I would just say, please, just keep reading the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to come to some end of life issues. We're going to talk about what happens to the souls of those who die. Solomon knows very well what happens. The point here is simply this. When he says, who knows that the breath of man ascends upward, he's making an assumption, isn't he? The assumption is this, that our spirits go upward as in heaven, and the spirits of animals don't. But who knows that? What what do we observe uh, regarding people who die? Nothing. They just go into the ground. We don't, we don't get to talk to dead people. Hey, what happens next? We don't know. And that's what he's really saying here is this. We're limited in our experience and in our knowledge just like animals are. There's nothing observable about our existence after we die. So what are you going to do? Trust the Lord. That's again the point. And what does he, what does he do? He comes again to the refrain, right? Uh, though said in a different way in in verse 22. And so this is our third point. Man is called to faith. Man is called to trust the Lord. Verse 22, I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? This is a call to trust the sovereign God. Trust God with the limits of your particular time in this life. That's what's going to lead to your present joy. And really, this verse ties us all the way back to verse 11. He has set eternity in their hearts, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. There's a longing for eternity. There's a longing for a permanence and for a forever. There's a longing for God's presence. And yet, that longing itself will not provide for us the big grand picture. We long for it, and yet we cannot find out the work which God has done. Now, I've already recommended to you um, David Gibson's book, Living Life Backwards. He says, as he's commenting on this portion of of, uh, Ecclesiastes, that God's sovereignty is not to be discounted because of our limited view uh, on the times of life. We're not to discount God's sovereignty just because we experience both good and bad things. uh, Because we only can see uh, very limitedly what's going on in our own lives. In fact, we don't even see what's going on in the whole world. And because of God's sovereignty, 
We ought to be comforted and challenged. And that's how I want to close. As we're being called to trust in God, I want to talk about uh, how uh, we're to take, we're to draw comfort from God's sovereignty first. You notice that in verse 22, where it says, for who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Who, who, how do you know what's going to happen uh, after you die? It's all in God's hands. And if that is the case, then we ought to draw comfort now being in God's hands. I want you to consider children. And children, consider yourselves. Children are often frustrated because their parents see a bigger picture than they do of the world. And they establish rules and goals and patterns based on this larger perspective what to eat, what to wear, when to go to bed, when to get up, where to go, where to not go. It just seems like a bunch of control. But you see, provisions and protections are not always understood and appreciated by the child. Kinds of freedom are often debated especially as you get into those older ages where you're gaining more independence, but you still need to be one who appreciates being under authority. It's really hard. It's a challenging time of life. But you see, what's important in that whole relationship dynamic is that uh, the child learns how to trust their parent who knows and sees more. And we're like children in comparison to God's ordering of our lives. We might get frustrated. No, we do get frustrated. We debate our freedoms with God. But you see, God lives forever, and I will not. And I can experience the several uh, different times of my life knowing that they're actually a part of God's bigger picture. And I can't see that bigger picture, but it's visible to the good and the wise God who sees the whole as beautiful and right and wise and holy. And so part of being mature, part of maturing, and part of being wise and growing in wisdom in this world is learning to accept that we have only a very limited access to the big picture of God. That we were not built to understand the big picture, but we were built to trust the one who creates the big picture. And that trust is built on the character of the one who knows and sees best. As I said before, children are to trust their parents. When a parent is good and a parent is wise and a parent is kind, then the kids don't have to fear what they don't know or they can't see. They can just trust. How much more can we trust our good and wise and holy God for all the things that we cannot see? as well as the things that we can. At the center of God's 
big picture, though. He has made it so clear, hasn't he? At the center of his big picture is the sending forth of his son for me, for you. And just as Christ remembered me in his lowest time, he will remember my time and he will bring it to right and he will retrieve every injustice in my life and he will bring it to right. Now I have to be careful with that because you know where he begins. Christ begins, when he deals with the injustices of my life, he begins with my injustices. He begins with where I have offended, where I have worked against God, where I have rebelled, where I have been frustrated and I have debated and even gone against uh, the commands of God. And he will also deal justly with offenses against me. Solomon says that he will judge the righteous man and the wicked man. So there is a comfort in God's sovereignty, but finally there is a challenge in God's sovereignty. As Solomon says, I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. God God will deal with all injustices. All of them. Therefore, while I seek out the right and the good, I don't need to seek control of everything that happens to me in my life. There's one who can control it way better than me. Who does control it way better than me. I mean, first of all, my control is an illusion. I don't control hardly anything. But secondly, if I try to control everything, Instead of trusting in God and His sovereignty, it puts me in a place of manipulating my world. I become the manipulator. And thirdly, if I'm seeking to control all the things that happen to me in my life, you know what that does? It creates injustice. Because I am sinning against a God who controls everything. I'm saying, no God, let me do it. No God, I know better. No, God, I have this the right way. I create injustice. Well, I'm trying to protect myself from injustice. Instead, as one puts it, time in God's hands graciously disciples us. I'm going to give you an extended quote here. We're almost done. David Gibson says, When we are dancing, most of us don't realize we're creating memories with people whom we will one day mourn. Uh, When we're weeping, we rarely think that in a few weeks' time, we could be laughing again. Maybe we've known only peace and never war. Perhaps it's hard to imagine a day when to touch will be less wise than to refrain or that conversations lie ahead of us that one day we would give anything to erase because we foolishly chose speech over silence. Nearly always, we live only in and for each moment. What difference would it make to our now to begin to live in light of the fact that there will be a then? 
If I embrace change, if, if I embrace that God is sovereign over all things and that even the seasons and times of change in my life were all intended for my good, if I embrace that in advance of change, then I can adjust my steps and I can be prepared for the winters of life. Instead of just lamenting that there are bad times, what if I could be prepared for the bad times and still trust God in the bad times and have my satisfaction be in Him even in the bad times? That's where Solomon is taking us today. Verse 22, Solomon is telling us that we use our times to seek satisfaction rather than living in the times that God has given and receiving satisfaction from Him as a gift. Satisfaction, though, comes when you know you are a time-bound creature and the triune God is the eternal creator and savior and has your best interest in mind. Satisfaction lodges in my heart when I accept the boundaries of my creaturely existence and I accept seasons of my life as coming from God's good and wise hands to disciple me and make me more like Jesus. In that sense, friends, in that sense, even the bad times are good times. Or even the bad times can be turned to my good is a better way of saying it. That's the way Paul says it, right? I've seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. Well, <clears throat> there's uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Paul, um, Paul. Solomon is not done speaking to the uh, issues of God's sovereignty and the, and the, and the issues of life. Uh, we're going to move into some other things as well that rise to the surface and challenge us to trust God and His sovereignty, but all for the purpose of reinforcing our faith, all for the purpose of uh, strengthening and increasing our faith in God in the midst of uh, the, the times that are hard. Well, may the Lord bless his word and help us uh, in this day and in uh, time to come until he returns. Amen. Let's pray.